say, 2 Samuel chapter 11, where it's page 262, that's what it said in, in the small print pew Bible, if you're there. And we're going to read um, just all of, all of chapter 11. David and Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in Booth. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set your eye in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. As Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab. Some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so, so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobosheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your 
servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then there, verse 27, and we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word. There are probably uh, lots of things going on in the world, uh, or, or maybe even just our own lives, that can leave us scratching our head and thinking, how did this happen? Uh, I'm just, uh, that was very American. I, <laughs> how did this happen? Is that better? Uh, how did this happen? How on earth did we get uh, to this point? We live in a world where Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are two of the most powerful men in the world. And many of us might look and think just that. How on earth did we reach this point? Or on a, on a much smaller uh, local scale, in January of last year, I was driving over here on a Monday morning when I came across this site. Now, obviously, when you see that, your first thought is both for the driver and whoever might have been unfortunate uh, enough to be on the inside of that house at the point of impact. But that's quickly followed by a truckload of other questions of what on earth went wrong, uh, what sequence of events could possibly have happened that ended up uh, with that result. Now, as it turns out, and fairly unsurprisingly, to be fair, uh, alcohol uh, was the answer to the how and why uh, of what went wrong there. But as we turn to this passage in 2 Samuel, if we're familiar with the storyline of David up until this point, which after working through 1 Samuel last year, hopefully we are at least a little bit, um, then it's hard not to have the same kind of wonderings when we hit this passage. As, as I said earlier, we all know and have known since we were children um, this, the stories of David, the, the David the boy, uh, so confident in the saving power of the Lord that he was willing to face the giant Goliath. I don't need to put you through that story, we know it backwards. Uh, we know as well David the fugitive. His life uh, threatened on a regular basis, hounded by Saul, yet so devout and so adamant in his refusal to harm the Lord's anointed king that even when to you or I, and certainly to David's own men, it seemed that the Lord himself was delivering uh, Saul into David's hands, David still would not lift his hand to strike Saul down. And we know of David the fearless warrior in the Psalms that the Israelites sang. Saul has killed his thousands, but David uh, his tens of thousands. But now here uh, in, in 2 Samuel, over the first ten chapters, David has become king. Uh, the Lord, we read just a few chapters earlier in chapter 7, uh, has made what we know now as the Davidic covenant, this huge uh, promise that one from David's line would reign forever. David has expanded the kingdom. Uh, he's subdued the old enemy, the Philistines, and um, 
pretty much any other surrounding kingdom that got in his way. And really, in the entire story of the nation of Israel, this, right before this chapter, is, is as good as it gets. Everything is wonderful. Uh, the Israelites are, um, as Scotty would probably put it, the big dogs. Um, but then we hit what we read together earlier, chapter 11. A chapter that chronicles um, really a truly grotesque descent uh, into David's sinful nature. I'm not going to go verse by verse, or, or I don't want to retell you what we've read. It's, it's, it's there and, and we get the gist, but there's a few things as we go through that maybe, um, that maybe help us with our understanding. Now, right in verse 1, if, if, if you're there with me, again, 262 in the Pew Bibles, there are perhaps clues that something um, has gone or is going wrong. We read there in that verse that it's spring, the time when kings go out to war. Uh, that would be the time in the year when the rainy season had subsided, so the, the land uh, was drying out, um, so easier to move through. Food was more plentiful, so feeding an army on the move uh, was less burdensome. But we read that David stays behind in Jerusalem uh, in the comfort of what he's described, again, in chapters previous as his sort of magnificent cedar palace. Now, the text isn't explicit here, uh, and, and so it's quite possible you could read that uh, as simply a sign that, that David had complete confidence in Joab and his men to achieve victory without him. But it's interesting to note, this is the first mention in the Bible of a leader staying off the battlefield in a time of war. And I want to contrast this to another story of David uh, that we actually read later on uh, in Samuel. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, if you want to keep your finger in one and, and flip to the other, uh, at that point in 2 Samuel, there's this passage uh, where uh, the author is recording the names of certain exploits of, what are, of the guys that are known as David Mighty Warriors. David's mighty warriors. And so in 2 Samuel 23, verse 13, if you're there, uh, we read uh, this little passage. It says, During harvest time, three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adulam, or Adulam, or whatever that's pronounced, while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. So again, this is telling a story from before David was king, when he was on the run, when Saul was after him. Um, Verse 15, David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So three, the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Philistine, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. And so here in this little story, we see David before he's taken the throne, living in exile, and he's appalled at the very idea that these men would risk their own lives on his behalf. But now, as we hop back to chapter 11, now he rests in the palace while the men of Israel go out and fight and risk their lives for his kingdom. And so you could certainly make a case that something significant in David has changed. We read on, and as we saw from his comfortable surroundings, he casts his eye on Bathsheba, who is bathing, and who we read there in, in verse 4, just afterwards has completed the purification rites after um, 
forget how ESV puts it, but basically after having a period. Now that detail is included to make it clear that there is absolutely no way that this baby was Uriah's. Um, but it also shows us that she's observing uh, the Jewish religious customs. Okay, so she was sent for, uh, and again, we're not given any clear indication um, of how willingly she complied with David, but certainly there's no condemnation of her anywhere in the text. And we read later, of course, if there was any suggestion in her mind that um, perhaps she was um, on board with this plan or willing, it, it really doesn't seem that way. Uh, she mourned for her husband when he was killed. Um, and as David was king in a society that gave uh, women few rights, uh, realistically, if David had decided that he wanted her, which he clearly did, uh, there was probably very little she could do. Um, and it's even, others have suggested it's quite possible that she was violated against, completely against her will. And so from this low point um, of adultery, possibly rape, uh, the rest of the chapter chronicles David's spiraling descent further and further into sin. Uh, trying to conceal what has happened in the face of the pregnancy. Uh, and so he recalls your eyes we read from the battlefield, and, and verse 8 tells him, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now that, that to us seems like an odd command. Um, and we might wonder why David is concerned with the cleanliness of Uriah's feet. But in the hot, dusty, desert conditions of the Middle East, the last thing you would do before getting into bed each night would be to wash your feet. So at best, David is telling Uriah to go home and rest. Um, but there's a good chance, there's a direct implication here that, that he's really insinuating to Uriah, go home and be with your wife. Um, a modern equivalent might be if you told someone to go home and get between the sheets. That kind of, that's what's going on. Uriah, as we saw, refuses. But I, I want to pause just really, we're in verse 11 here, um, and look at the reason that Uriah gives. When David questions him, which is what he says there in verse 11, he says, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in Booth, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, do you see there the complete contrast to David? How Uriah's heart is the exact opposite of the king who stayed behind in Jerusalem while his men were fighting. The king who stayed in his palace while the ark uh, is housed under canvas. The king who was so unconcerned with the men who were fighting for him that he stooped so low as to prey upon one of their wives. David, of course, tries again, hoping alcohol will undo Uriah's righteous resolve. But when getting him drunk fails, he goes yet further and seeks to engineer Uriah's death. And in fact, he's so brazen in that act, in a gruesome little detail, he even has Uriah deliver by his own hand the instructions for what was in reality his execution. Not only does Uriah fall, but so do several other valiant men all in the name of David's desire to cover up his sinful acts. Now, who were these valiant men that fell? Quite possibly, these were more of those mighty men uh, that we were looking at in chapter 23. Men who had been with him in exile. Men who had come and stood by his side and risked their life when Saul and his armies wanted David dead. 
men who had left their homes to follow him. David owed his uh, life and his crown to these men. And let's go back to chapter 3 where those names are listed. Verse 4, among the 30, there were Ashiel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem. We'll skip on. There's about 35 of them or so. Well, the 30. Um, down to verse 36, we'll just jump. Egal, son of Nathan, from Zobah, the son of Hagri. Zelek, the Ammonite. Naharai, the Berathite. The armor-bearer of Joab, son of Zeriah. Ira, the Ithrite. Gareb, the Ithrite. And last of all, verse 39, and Uriah. The more I looked at what was going on here, I wasn't expecting it, but the worse, the worse it got. Um, this was truly a, just a disgusting thing. I suppose you could say many disgusting things that, that David had done. And if that loss of life of these good men who had served him, who had willingly shed their blood for him, was not bad enough, then we see the cold lack of remorse in his reply to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. David saying, what does it matter who died? Some will die, some won't. Don't worry about it. And the chapter ends with those words, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, or as another translation might put it, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so again, I don't know about you, but the question that leaves me with is how on earth could we, how, how did David, who the Bible declares was a man after God's own heart, fall to this depth of depravity? And, and, and for us, what, what do we do with that? And the first thing I think we can say is if that can happen to David, then you can bet your bottom dollar that it can happen to us. If this man of faith a converted man, a tried and tested follower of the one true God. And again, the man that the Bible itself describes as a man being after God's own heart. If he can fall to that depth of lust and adultery and lies and murder that we see here, I think it was Tim Keller pointed out, that's five of the Ten Commandments in this chapter that David just blasted through, then we can be no, under no illusion that there but for the grace of God go we. In our sinful nature, within every one of us, lies the potential for this kind and every other kind of evil. Every one of us, if left to our own devices, will choose to turn from God in pursuit of our own desires. The pattern has been unchanged since the Garden of Eden. We look, we desire something that's not of God, we take it for ourselves, and then we set about concealing it. So it was with Adam... So it was with David, and so it can be and often is with us. Those seeds are within us. We nurture them. We rationalize. We attempt to justify our actions. Perhaps we blame others. Again, a trick we, we have copied right from Adam ever since. We compare our feelings to other sins or others' sins. We say, well, they're, they're not as bad as such and such, or... Well, I could, it could have been a lot worse. I could have done this, but I only did this. Or perhaps, perhaps like David maybe said, it was a, 
I've done the right thing so often and for so long in these other areas that I'll cut myself some slack over here. I've earned that. And gradually we move bit by bit away from righteousness. Because I think we could imagine, it's probably a safe bet that if you could have gone two years or maybe even a year, maybe even a few months, I don't know, uh, before these events transpired and had spoken to David and described his actions, I'd be fairly certain he would be horrified. But perhaps after years on the run, after waiting so long to ensure that he took the throne the right way, perhaps David thought that he had earned a break. He had been through hard times. And there's no doubt he had. Nobody knew or understood the pressure he'd been under for so long. And all the way through that, he had walked blamelessly. Perhaps he thought it was someone else's turn to carry that burden. He'd already led his men through countless battles. No one could question what David had done for Israel. It was someone else's turn. Others could take to the battlefield. It was fine for him to enjoy what he had earned, to sit back and stay at the palace. And that little seed, that little selfish desire, that pride, it was nurtured and it grew. And it grew to the extent that the, the idea of others dying on his behalf no longer seemed abhorrent. In fact, it maybe even seemed right and proper that they would lay their lives down for their king. And if a king can expect men to give him their lives, if he's comfortable taking that from them, as it seems David was, then suddenly taking their wife isn't quite such a big step as maybe once it would have been. Friends, we are together, all of us, sinful beings. And this passage calls us to examine our hearts, to ask which sinful desires, which seeds are we nurturing? Which are we allowing just to, to whisper to us, to call us away from following God with, with all that we are? There's a very famous John Owen quote that says, Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. If we're not actively weeding, if we're not going to war against the sin within us, then little by little we get turned around until suddenly, unexpectedly, we find ourselves uh, completely at odds with our confessed Christian faith. A few years ago, I was um, on my summer holidays. Over a few of you know I'm on a quest to climb the, the 50 highest peaks in eastern Washington. None of them are that tall. It sounds more impressive. Um, but I, I had headed off um, on, I plotted out my route, and I was going to climb three of them that day. Um, now, the first one, I was able uh, to drive up relatively close to the peak. And so I quickly, I drove, I parked, let's say, there, um, and ascended, and we'll say the top of the mountain um, is the pulpit. So climbed up, everything is going great, but as I stood and, and admired the view, I saw really just in the space of maybe about 10 minutes, thick cloud kind of came rolling up the valley and sort of filled the valley and then came up over the top. 
And I say, in, in the space of 10 to 15 minutes, it went from um, sort of panoramic view to really being able to see maybe to the back of the church, but certainly no farther than that. Um, now, so I'd come up from this direction, and I knew the path kind of, there wasn't a path to the top, the path kind of scooted around the mountain. So the path, I'd parked my car there, I'd gone straight up, but the path sort of went round there and round the back. So I'd gone up, and the, the other two mountains were that way, and the path would kind of take me in that direction. So I headed down the far side of the pulpit there, um, because I knew as long as I went that way, I would definitely catch the path, uh, and off I would go. So off I went, and after, you know, 20, 15 minutes ago, um, I saw ahead of me, kind of looming out of the mist, um, a van. And I thought, that's strange, because I didn't think you could drive to that side of the mountain. And I took a few more steps, and I thought, huh, that looks a lot like my van. And I took a few more steps, and I realized, that is my van. And I would not have believed it was possible, because it wasn't that big a mountain. But I thought I had headed off that way. I thought I had just gone straight down the mountain. But somehow, each little step, I had looped round and ended up exactly where I started. And I give thanks that I had left the van there because I don't know where I would have ended up. <laughs> because I was, I was not where I thought I was. Um, and that's, I don't know if that's a helpful picture, but it's that kind of, we, we lose the, the big picture. We, can, we, we get so involved in these little things and maybe one step, it's not like I just swiveled on my heel and was going the wrong, wrong direction. We only see that little step in front, of our, in front of us. We justify, we reduce that down to significance and little by little, we get spun around and we end up somewhere where we had no intention of being and where we never wanted to go. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Jen Wilkin was teaching on this passage, um, I was listening to her this week, and she said this, she said, your justification costs you nothing, but your sanctification will cost you everything. Now that, that bears some thinking about it. Your justification costs you nothing, but your sanctification will cost you everything. So your justification, that's you being made right with God, that as hopefully you know and hear often in church, that is a free gift. It wasn't free for Jesus. It cost him his life, but for us it is a free gift. And that is done. That work was finished on the cross. There's nothing more required of you but to accept it. Justification is taken care of. That will cost you nothing. But the sanctification, the process of you being made more and more like Jesus, being transformed by the Holy Spirit, um, being made holy, that, as Jen Wilkins said, that will cost you everything. Because it demands the putting to death of all your pride, all your selfish desires, your greed, your envies, your lust. There's no compromising. There's no making a truce with sin. It requires you to be intentional and active. You, Christian, are at war killing sin, or it will be killing you. So then the question might be, well, how, how do we do that? 
And the first thing I would say is not alone. We can't do it alone. We're, we're not capable of that. As I got spun around in the clouds, what I needed was someone above the clouds who could see not just the few steps in front of me, like I could, but could see the big picture of what direction I was headed. We go to war by going to the one who can see all, by spending time in his word and in prayer, listening to his voice, to his spirit within us, uh, being ready to be corrected and rebuked. And then also, we go to war together with other Christians who know us, Christians that we are open with and vulnerable and honest with, uh, Christians who can call us out when they see that rising up within us or, or see us taking steps in those directions. In Hebrews 13, verse 13, it says this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We don't fight this fight alone, but with the Spirit and together. David had no one, it seems. No peer to rebuke him, uh, no servant brave enough to speak truth. I was wondering as I read that, had Jonathan be alive, would he perhaps have been the one that uh, David might have listened to? But as things had uh, panned out, no one did. David kept walking the path he had embarked on, and the consequences were terrible. If you want to read on, Nathan does call him out, but friends, if you're a Christian, again, your justification is complete. Your salvation doesn't depend on this battle. You will at times fail and fail again and again and again. But God does not cast you off. Neither did he, David. Those sins, uh, those failures, those have been paid for on the cross. But our sanctification, the life that you are called to as a Christian... Well, Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow. He calls us to this fight. And so the question for all of us is, where is your battle? Again, what, what seeds need to be ripped up? What sins are there and we've allowed them to have their place? We'll keep those to one side. It doesn't really affect anything. can be no truth. Be killing sin, for it will be killing you. Amen. We're going to close um, our service this evening. Again, as we spent a long time talking about sin, uh, we never do that in the absence of the good news. Hopefully that, that, that came through. Um, but as much as we look at David and are horrified, there's perhaps a strange encouragement as there as well. Um, we see that David was not king because he earned it in any way. Just as we are saved by grace, David was king by grace. Um, he wasn't chosen because he was going to be perfect. Again, murderer. Murderer. Uh, and so, as we finish this evening, um, as we look to that battle, we do so looking to the king who leads us in that, and despite of our failures and successes along the way, um, the king 
who will take us home.